Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Cast Rock. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to be able to place a Bible in your hand. Um, <clears throat> you know, as we offer that uh, on Saturday, the 8th, all those different programs for homeschooling and other curriculum and things like that, um, that's going to become more and more valuable as we go forward. I'm not here to necessarily prophesy anything. I just think that you can see the writing on the wall. Okay. Um, our legislation here in Colorado uh, is nothing short of pure evil. Uh, the things that they are racing through uh, to make law and things like that. Um, <clears throat> we have a House Bill 1003 that was just passed on March 17th. And this bill basically uh, is beginning the eroding of parental rights. Okay. So this bill creates a mental health assessment and screening program. Well, that sounds pretty good. What's, what, Dave, what do you have against mental health and screening program through the Department of Health and Environment? Um, right now, schools can determine whether or not to participate. I would submit to you the majority will. Uh, I will submit to you that eventually that will not become something you can choose to participate. They will force you to as a public school. That will eventually come. Um, what they do is that they have for the first two weeks of the school year, they're going to have a program where they get to sit down with your child and begin to identify if they have a health problem or not or a mental health problem or not. Um, right now, and this is for 12 years and older, uh, parents may opt, opt out of their 12-year-old child from screening, but only if the child consents. And so um, if the screener believes a child is in danger of harming self or others, the student, school, and parents must be notified unless the child does not consent. So if the child doesn't consent, then the school doesn't have to notify you. So... Parents must be given information on resources and service provided through the iMatter program, but only, again, if the child consents. So what that means is, is that if, and this is all for this reason alone, if your child is thinking of transgendering but doesn't want their parents to know, then they have an outlet there at their school to, to go down that path without letting the parents know. That's what this is all about. It's not because of other mental health issues and things like that. It's strictly for that reason, and I, I just want you to be aware of that. Right now, homeschool is not um, part of this, uh, but as they make all the schools part of this, they'll eventually reach into that, I'm sure, as well. And so I, I just want you to understand the direction that this is going. I say this out of uh, truth and love and everything else you're supposed to share. God's word as well as other things in truth and love. If you just share truth, you can be a very, very cruel person. And if you just share love, well then anything goes. And then nothing matters. Okay. But when you share truth and love, there's power in that. There's power in that. And so again... Um, as a grandparent, I'm going to make sure that my grandkids do not 
go to a school, because I'm sure I already know um, my kids are, are part of this as well, that they're not going to want their kids to go to any school that will be participating in that. And so if that requires them going to uh, homeschool or, or a private school or whatever, we as grandparents will come alongside to try and help any way that we can to make sure that it goes in that direction. And so when you look at it and go, well, I, you know, my kids are already grown up. Okay, but you have grandkids. Okay, I, grandkids are grown up. Then you have great-grandkids. There's somewhere in there uh, that you need to be praying for and helping others so they don't have to uh, present their kids in such an evil, evil, evil environment. Because that's what it is. That's what it is. So um, I have no doubt that things are going to get worse. And, uh, and Lord, come quickly. That's all I have to say. So with that encouraging word, <laughs> let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Before, before going into ministry, I was an insurance and security agent for about four years with Mass Mutual. In the last year, I had come back to the Lord and I had gotten involved at our church, Horizon Christian Fellowship, with the high school ministry. I began teaching a small Bible study with high school kids that Grew to about 65 kids, and, um, and, and I, it was a time of, wow, this is really exciting to be able to see. In the midst of that time, I remember going, Lord, I, I don't really enjoy what I'm doing in life. I don't really enjoy being an insurance and security agent, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of feeling a stirring in my heart, uh, but I'm not exactly sure what it is, and so I took some time off, and I went with some friends uh, skiing up in Mammoth Mountain in the Sierras in California, and I kind of cut my teeth on that. Uh, my parents had a condo up there, and so we would go up there every year, and, and we would ski, and so I learned to ski upon that mountain, and um, we still had that condo at that time, and so brought some friends up there, and then I told them one day, you guys go. I just want to stay back. I'm going to really seek the Lord, and I, I believe I'm in a crossroads of, of what it is that God is calling me to do, and so I sought the Lord that whole day, and I, I prayed, read, prayed, read, kept on asking the question, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And so kept praying and asking, and it was about one, two in the afternoon that I heard clear as day in my mind, Dave, what is it that you look forward to every week? Oh, I don't know, Lord. I just, man, I don't know. What am I so, I don't know. What do you look forward to every week? Well, I don't know. I, I, what do you look forward to every week? And I just go, teaching that Wednesday night Bible study. And I heard as clear as day, do that. And I remember thinking, is there money in that? How do you... <laughs> well, ha, ha. But that's all I heard. And faith doesn't ask how, faith just does. So I got back. Like I said, I was... Involved in the youth program there at our church with the high school ministry. And I went and spoke to Miles McPherson, who was overseeing and the, the uh, um, youth pastor of our church. And Miles had taken over like a year and a half earlier that there was like about, uh, you know, 30 kids or so. And um, it had grown to about 300 kids at that point. 
And so I went to Miles. I said, this is what the Lord told me. I don't know what this means. He says, well, you see what's going on here with the youth group is exploding. I could use some help. I definitely could use some full-time help. Have you ever thought of going into missionary support? And I'm going don't know what that is. So no, I've never thought of that, you know. What, what does that mean, you know? And so he explained to me that you actually raise the support. You go to the church and say, hey, I have, you know, X amount of dollars and people are willing to give so I can come uh, alongside in this ministry. And, uh, and so uh, Miles explained that to me. It took about four, three or four months to gather enough people to say, hey, we'll give you so much. And I quit my job and I went into ministry full time. And uh, six months later, I meet my wife, Mindy, as we're doing youth ministry. She was not in the youth ministry. She came along with youth ministry. Let's make that very clear. Let's make that very clear. And so um, she wanted to help out with the youth ministry, and so met her uh, six months as, as I was doing this. Six months later, uh, um, got engaged, asked her to marry me in front of a high school Bible study of 500 people at that point. We had a huge auditorium. That's where we met as a high school ministry. Six months after that, got married. Um, my father-in-law at that point is the pastor of the church, and so he wanted to know if I wanted to do an internship. I said, yeah. Did that for a year. Then he hired me on as a uh, associate pastor for another two years. And then after that, we moved out here to plant a church, and, and we planted Horizon Christian Fellowship in Littleton and was there for 17 years before God called my wife and I and our family here 11 years ago. And so that meeting with the Lord, going to that condo, asking God and hearing clearly do that, that was my burning bush experience. I had received my calling, a call that was not easy, it was not comfortable, a call that I sometimes doubted, but it was my call. Moses is about to receive his calling here, his burning bush experience where we get that phrase from but Moses is about to learn what I had to learn when you receive the calling you have to understand it is not about you it's eyes on the living God and God is always looking for people who are willing available and teachable and you take away any of those three things and you're going to fail in what God has called you to do you're going to fail in what God has called you to do and it's not going to be easy. And it hasn't been easy. But I will tell you this. When you have an all-sufficient God and an insufficient man, and that insufficient man places himself in the hands of an all-sufficient God, God can do amazing things. And he's about to do that with Moses here. Moses is now Midian. He's 40 years has passed. He's a shepherd for Jethro, his father-in-law. We read here in verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is also Mount Sinai, by the way. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So this is the most famous appearing of the angel of Yahweh. Um, at this point, Moses has never met God. He's in the wilderness, the backside of the desert, watching over sheep, totally oblivious about what's about to happen. And so last time we went over uh, verse 1 and 2a is as far as we had gotten. 
but we discussed at great length who the angel of the Lord is. And anytime you see Lord there, L-O-R-D, all capitalized, that always means Yahweh, okay? And then that, that always means that when you look at that and understand that, when we, when we uh, track angel of the Lord, it is always speaking of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call that a uh, Christophany. And a Christophany comes from two Greek words. Christos means Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Phanero, which means to be revealed or manifest or to make clear. Therefore, a Christophany is a visible manifestation or appearance of Christ before taken on human form through the virgin birth. So it's something physical you can see without seeing God in all his glory, okay? Um, Moses is about to have an encounter with God, and he's going to see a Christophany. He's going to see this angel of the Lord in the flame. It's not the flame. It's, he's in the flame. And that is also the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus himself. And so, at this point of his life, Moses never met God, But as it happens so often in the Bible, God comes looking for a man. And he comes to Moses, and he's about to turn his life upside down. So verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So again, angel of the Lord, Yahweh, um, appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Flame of fire often appears as a symbol of God's presence. We see this with Abram in Genesis 15, 17, when God is making a covenant with Abram. We read in Genesis 15, 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And that spoke of the Lord, Yahweh, making a covenant. He appeared in those forms. Later in Exodus, God will appear in the pillar of fire uh, to lead Israel in the desert. God will appear in a flame of fire when the, a fire when the uh, tabernacle and the temple is built. Here in Exodus 3, in verse 21, we see this. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire. He allowed for that form to be around him, but he was not that form. He was not the cloud. He is not the flame. He is not the fire. But this form is what envelopes him. Okay? Um, In Exodus 14, 19, it says, And the angel of God, which is the same as angel of the Lord, Yahweh, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. Verse 24 goes on to say, Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord, Yahweh, looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. The word through there in verse 24 is the same Hebrew word that means in. Same word. Same word. Thus showing the angel of God, verse 19, chapter 14, and Lord, Yahweh, in verse 24, speaking of the same event, the same thing happening, are one and the same. Okay, one and the same. It's also interesting that the Holy Spirit appears 
in very fiery ways as well. We read that on the day of Pentecost, don't we? In Acts chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where, there, where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Because of this, there's many who believe that Yahweh is appearing through the Spirit. In other words, the fire and the cloud is a Spirit that envelopes the angel of the Lord, Yahweh. So that anytime Yahweh appears as a cloud or as fire, it is the manifestation of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, covering the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus. And whatever the case may be here with Moses... There is a fire here, and yet the amazing thing is in that fire there's a bush, and it's not being consumed. It's not being consumed. Go to verse 3 here of Exodus. It says, Then Moses said, I will now turn aside, see the great sight, why the bush does not burn. Let's say what's not happening here. The bush is not fueling the fire, or then the bush would be consumed. However, what we are seeing is that the fire is fueling the bush. In other words, something supernatural, contrary to the laws of nature, is happening here. Moses is being shown something supernatural in order to get Moses' attention. And this supernatural occurrence was also something of God's holiness, his glory, being shown to Moses. And so Moses notices a bush burning yet it's not being consumed. The word bush here in the Hebrew is a Hebrew word, and it's sine. The, un, uh, the, um, the unused root meaning means to prick. It means a bramble. So this is some sort of a thorn bush. The ancient rabbis taught that this is the acacia thorn bush, the thorn bush of the desert. It's interesting to me that the curse of Adam was characterized by thorns. We read in Genesis 3.17... Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So thorns are symbolic of the curse. The thorn of the crowns that Jesus wore on the cross were not something painful that he just had to endure. They represented the curse that was placed upon him. God placing the curse of mankind upon his son, Adam's sin. Jesus taking the curse of mankind upon himself, making the payment for the curse for all of mankind. Fire speaks of judgment. So this burning bush, this thorn bush, man's curse is being judged by fire and yet not being consumed. To the rabbinical mind, that is God's grace and mercy. The sin of man, the thorn bush, the curse being judged by fire, yet not being consumed. You see, it's God's grace that attracts us to that. And understand, it's a foreshadowing that he is going to judge sin. And those who receive that gift of God's Son will not be consumed. But their sin will indeed be judged. 
Amazing. Amazing. Bush not being consumed. It attracts Moses. And whether Moses knew it or not, I believe that God was showing him a lesson of mercy and grace and a foreshadowing of how he's going to take care of the sin problem later on. We continue to read in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush saying, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. We've seen the same pattern of God's calling with Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 11. And then we see it with Jacob, Jacob in Genesis 31, 11. We see it in Samuel, 1 Samuel uh, 3, 11. Samuel, Samuel. And then we see it here with Moses, Moses. In verse 5, it said, he said to him, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. It's interesting, when you look up the Hebrew word for sandals, it's pronounced crocs. It's weird. I, it's like, wow, all right. I want you to go to Joshua chapter 5. We read something kind of similar there, okay? Go over here to Joshua chapter 5. Place your finger right there, Joshua chapter 5, and then go over to... Exodus 33. So keep your hand there. And then let's go over to Exodus 33. Now, after Moses has brought the people to Mount Sinai, before the people had made the tabernacle, Okay, after they had made the, before they had made the tabernacle, Moses would meet God in his own tent, and it was called the tabernacle, it was called the tent of meeting, okay, but because of the sin that happens in chapter 32 of worshiping the golden calf and everything else, Moses, God gets frustrated with the people, and Moses takes his tent, which is in the midst of the people, and places it outside the camp. So now he's going to meet with God outside the camp. And so that tent that he meets God in, which is Moses' tent where he sleeps and everything else, that is called the tabernacle. It's also called the tent of meeting. And this is called the tabernacle tent of meeting before the actual tabernacle is built. Okay? So in verse 7, I I had to explain that so you understand what's happening here. Okay? Verse 7 says, Moses took his tent, pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, called it the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, and it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose, each man stood at his tent door, watched Moses until he had gone to the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended, stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked to Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So they see Moses walk outside of the camp over to his tent over there, however far away it was. Moses is going to be talking to God himself. The people are way over here, so they don't hear what's going on. But they see the pillar of cloud and they know that God's presence is there. And that he's speaking to him. They, they do know that. And so it says in verse 11, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. 
man, this is going to be fun when we get to Exodus 33, so you guys can figure out what that means. But until then, neener, 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 I ain't telling you. So um, it says, and so the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp. Wouldn't it be great to, wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall to be able to hear what it is that God was speaking to Moses? Or you could just wish you were Joshua because his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. He stood outside the tabernacle. He was kind of like Moses' guard, you know, his personal secret service guy, you know, that would go with him wherever he is. And so he's outside to guard the, the, the tent there of meeting to make sure nobody comes in and things like that. He is sit, standing there on the outside. And you know, you've been camping. Tent walls aren't very well insulated. That's why when you go camping, you can hear people talking and having fun all the way down, you know, the way or whatever in their tent. They're talking loud or whatever, and you can hear all that. It's the same thing with Joshua. I guarantee you, he could hear the voice of God. It's wild. Wild to think about that. Now, keep your finger there in Joshua 5, but go over here to Deuteronomy 31. Remember, it's Deuteronomy, then Joshua. So where your hand is, go, go to the left. Don't go to the right from Exodus. You'll get there quicker. Just helping you, all right? So here in chapter 31, Moses is about to hand off the baton to Joshua, okay? And as he does this, we read in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 31. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. So now they're there together. And the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. Go down to verse 23. And this is God speaking. Then he, God, Yahweh, inaugurated Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, I will be with you. So he has been trained, being on the outside of the tent of meeting, every time Moses would go in, he's heard the word of God. He has heard God. Now he's inside the tent of meeting, with Moses, pillar of cloud has enveloped them, and they're in the very front as they go in. And he's there as he hears God. There is no face-to-face encounter like Moses had, but he still hears God. Now, knowing that, go to Joshua 5. Joshua 5. Here we see Joshua kind of contemplating. He's outside. He's by Jericho. He's probably thinking about this battle of how he's going to overtake Jericho, things like that, when all of a sudden he gets interrupted by someone. And so it says that it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. That means he has it out. He looks up. He sees a guy like this. Sworn drawn. 
Maybe it's like this. I don't know exactly. You know, it's, it's, it shows I'm ready for battle one way or another. He's looking up to him. And Joshua went to him. Joshua's no wimp. This means we, we've got a problem, you know. And Joshua went to him and said, you want a piece of me? It's kind of what he says here. Look what he says. He went to him. He goes up to him and says to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for or against us? And I love the response. Here's the response. No. I don't think Joshua knows what to do with that. He's going, uh, that doesn't really answer my question. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? No. Again, that does not answer the question. But look what is said here. No. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Lord, Yahweh. Interesting here. It's like this man tells him, yeah, that's the wrong question. The, the question isn't, am I for you or your adversaries? Here's the question. Are you for or against me? That's the question. No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So here's the real question. Are you on the side of the army of the Lord? And as this man speaks, what does Joshua do? He falls, he fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? He falls down, he worships him. How does he know to do that? Because he has already recognized the voice of God. He's never seen him. First manifestation in physical human form of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, also known here as the commander of the army of Yahweh. And he falls down and he worships him. Which gives testimony that the commander of the Lord's army is Yahweh, is God. Dave, how do you know that? Because in Revelation 19.10, as John is receiving this amazing revelation of the book of Revelation from the angel, it says in verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant of your brethren who have a testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't do that, John. You're only supposed to worship God. You cannot fall down. You cannot worship me. I am not God. And so John gets back up on his feet. He's shown more and more of this amazing revelation from God of Jesus himself being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then in chapter 22, he does it again. In verse 8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel. He showed me these things. And he said to him, said to me, See that you do not do that. We've been through this. Stop doing that, is what he's saying there. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets, of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And that's exactly what Joshua is doing. He doesn't get rebuked or anything. Why? Because the, the, the uh, commander of the Lord's army, which hosts means, okay, the Lord of hosts, hosts means army, okay, is Yahweh, second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. This is a Christophany. And he understands because he's heard the voice of God before. And so, boom, he falls down and he worships. And he worships here. 
So Joshua falls to his face, worships the Lord. Then he's told to remove his sandals for this place is holy ground. Verse 15. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did that. Holy means set apart for God. Okay. And so this is God's presence. He has set apart this little area of ground of where his presence is at that moment. And it's holy. It's set apart for the purposes of God. And so this removing of the sandals is a sign, scripturally we could see as a sign of respect and to show an attitude of humility. When it came to David, we read in 2 Samuel 15 as David flees before his son, Ab- before his son Absalom. Um, Zadok, the priest, shows up at the Ark of the Covenant willing to go with David. And so we read in verse 25, 2 Samuel 15, it's up here. It says that the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. And then it says in verse 30, as David leaves, it says this. So David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. Shows humility. Shows being humble before God. A mourning process of sorts. In Ezekiel, we're told that Ezekiel is, uh, he is told that his wife is going to die. And instead of doing the normal thing of mourning and being humble and taking off your shoes and, and putting, a, uh, you know, a sackcloth and ash on and things like that, he is told not to do that. Don't show humility. Don't show mourning. Why? Because you're going to be assigned to the people that they're not going to have time to do that themselves when they're taken captive and gone into Babylon. And so he tells them in verse 17 of Ezekiel 24, sigh in silence, meaning grieve in silence, make no mourning for the dead, bind your turban on your head, look like you do every day, and put your sandals on your feet. Show no mourning, show no humility. Interesting. It's also interesting when we go over the priestly garments in Exodus chapter 39. There's no mention of footwear. No mention of sandals or what kind of sandals you're supposed to use when you minister before the Lord. Because you're not supposed to be wearing any sandals. You're supposed to be barefoot. In Exodus 28, 6 through 14, it speaks of the ephod that the high priest is going to wear. In Exodus 28, 15 through 30, the breastplate. Exodus 28... 31 through 35, the robe. The Exodus 28, 36 through 38, the turban. Uh, Exodus 28, 39, the linen tunic. But no mention of what to wear on your feet. It's interesting that when it comes to uh, service there in the tabernacle or the temple, we're told that there's a labor to be placed just there in the courtyard before you enter into the holy place. And if you're a high priest before you enter the holy place and then the holy of holies. And so the laver is placed outside of the entrance to these rooms. This laver contains water, which God commands the priest to use to wash their hands and feet before they enter into the holy place. Exodus 30, verse 17 through 21. Exodus 40, verse 30 through 32. Failure to do so will result in their death. Exodus 30, 20 through 21. In order to wash your feet, if you have some sort of footwear on, it would require you to remove that footwear, your sandals. In order to wash your feet, it wouldn't make any sense to wash your feet and then put on dirty sandals after that. 
So, you wash your feet and they're clean. Yes, you step down onto ground, but as was explained to me last service, as someone explained to me as they kind of dug into the Jewish thought behind this, it's because you're about to serve the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so to be in touch with your creator, you need to be in touch with your creation, with his creation. I thought that was interesting. Could quite possibly be. But we don't see remove a sandal before you wash your feet. They're just told to wash their feet. And it is interesting when you see any sort of drawings. When you go to Israel, you go, uh, um, uh, you go to the Temple Institute and they show all these pictures of these priests serving and things. Like that, and they're all barefoot. They're all barefoot. Because there is no holy footwear, per se, in order to wear when you're serving the Lord in his tabernacle or temple. And so God is declaring this place where he's appearing, his presence set apart for his presence at that moment as holy. Take your shoes off. Take your shoes off. Verse 6. Moreover, he said, Exodus 3, verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses understands now. He's standing on holy ground. He's taking off his sandals. God continues to speak to him. And he says something very interesting that I had never seen before. But he says, I am the God of your father. Dave, we've been over this, you know, when, when uh, he came to Jacob, he says, I'm the God of your fathers and Abraham, Isaac. Okay, but here it's in the singular. And I personally believe that this is God speaking to Moses about his biological father. Saying, Moses, just so you know, I am, and he still is. He wasn't, I was. It's an I am thing. I am still the God of your father. Why? Because he's still alive. He's in the afterlife and he's doing just fine. I believe that that would probably have been a comforting thing for Moses to hear. And by saying his father, it also means his mother and any other loved ones of his that believed in God. Okay. And he goes on and says, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, the interesting thing to me here is that this is what Jesus used to refute the Sadducees when they would come to him and say the whole idea of the resurrection is ridiculous. Because for the Sadducees, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Okay, so as they argued with the Pharisees because they would use other scriptures other than what they could find in the first five books of the Bible, the Sadducees are saying, well, we don't recognize those other books. Please show us in the first five books where there's a resurrection of the dead. And what does Jesus do? He goes right to it. Here, let me show you something in, well, one of the books you believe in. And by the way, it's the second book. It's called Exodus. And so he says in verse 31 of Matthew 22, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying? Notice what he says that. This has been spoken to you, Sadducees, by God. And this is what God is saying. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living And he just rebuked them. And pretty much 80% of what they're in disagreement with more than anything else 
with the rest of Judaism. Now, they also didn't believe in angels and all, just different weird stuff. But it was really the resurrection of the, of the dead was their sticking point of why they have to be more or less separate from the Pharisees and, and the rest of those who believed in Judaism. It's what really set them apart was this whole thing about the resurrection. And Jesus just comes and obliterates it. Just obliterates it. Because God is the God of the living. There is an afterlife. And those who put their faith in God through his son Jesus Christ today, guess what? You'll spend eternity with God. And you'll be part of the living. And I believe that this is given to Moses and and for everyone else to understand that they're believing, you know, uh, fathers and mothers and wives and sons and daughters and husbands that die in faith are doing just fine in the afterlife. God is very clear about this, and you should be clear on this as well. Verse 7 of Exodus says, verse three, uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because they're taskmasters, for I know their sorrow. Something, again, that I, I never saw before. This is the first time that, uh, that God ever declares a people my people. This is the first time he declares to the children of Israel, I should say, as my people. It's amazing. And I've heard their cry. We're going to see in the next few verses here how much God himself says, I, 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 I. Okay? I have seen their oppression. I know their sorrows. Verse 8. So I've come down. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Who's going to deliver the people out of the hand of the Egyptians? God is going to do it. And to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. So he says I several times here, shows the Lord's personal commitment to the remedy of of their situation here. You have a crisis in verse 7. He repeats that crisis in verse 9, and he gives the remedy of it in verse 8, and he says he's the one that's going to do it. Now, at this point, Moses is probably going, yeah, awesome. This is great. This is awesome, you know. Um, I find this also interesting. There's a bit of a hint here of nowhere does it say, and Moses you're going to be part of this group that I take out and bring into the land flowing with milk and honey. Moses isn't mentioning that. Children of Israel, I've heard their cry. Those that are in bondage, I've heard their cry. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey. He doesn't say that to Moses. Now, quick little spoiler alert. Moses doesn't make it into the promised land. Okay, and the reason he doesn't is because, well, he misrepresented God. And Jesus says, too much is given, much is required. If you think for a moment, as you have been raised in a Christian home and be poured into the Christian faith, and you have a handle on the scriptures... And then you go sideways and decide, eh, I'm not going to walk with God after all. 
if you think the person who has not had that kind of an upbringing is under the same, well, punishment structure as you, you're wrong. You wonder why that person who hasn't been poured in to Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, Christian upbringing, things like that, is able to go off and sin, and it seems like it doesn't really affect them, and they seem to actually be prosperous in it. But then you try and do it, and you're getting hammered. You're getting slammed. You are not able to be successful apart from God. Why is it? Because too much is given, much is required. That's why. And because you probably are a child of God. And God punishes his children. He doesn't punish those that aren't his kids. Satan will punish them enough not knowing Christ. Okay. And so understand that. Well, Moses has been speaking to God face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. He's been able to see all that God has done through his life. He's been able to see as he delivers the people out, as God used him to deliver the people out, all those amazing plagues. And I, I got to tell you, you can share with me all you want about Dave, the parting of the Red Sea. Dave, all those ten plagues. Dave, when he smacks the rock and water comes out. Dave, uh, those are all amazing. But I got to tell you something. If I could ask to do any of those things through the power of God, it would still be the staff. It would still be the staff throwing it down and have it turn into a snake. To me, that is the most amazing thing to be able to do that, freak everybody else out in the room, and then just be able to pick it up and become a staff again. And then any other charlatan that tries to do that and throws it down and becomes a snake, I just throw mine down and he eats it. And then I can pick it up again. That to me, I'm telling you, I don't know if it's a guy thing or whatever, but I, prank city. (laughs) You don't know when I'm coming. And I'm dropping that on your kitchen floor. And just hearing you shriek and then picking up, it's just me, it's just Dave wanting to be Moses. That's all it is. That to me is the best. And he had that with him all the time. It never says he's not able to do that. It never doesn't say, and God took away that power to do that once they're out of the land. You know he was doing that for his grandkids and everybody else. He was. Throwing that down, picking it up, letting his kids shriek and, you know, grabbing it again. It would have been the most awesome thing. Been the most awesome thing. And so he, he experiences all this, gets to the other side of the Red Sea, not more than a day or two goes by, and the people are complaining, I'm thirsty. When am we going to get something to drink? Are we there yet? You know, that whole thing. And so God tells them, I want you to smack the rock at Mount Horeb, and water comes gushing out to be able to fill this lake of the people. Now, many years later, like 38 years later, they're in the wilderness. The people are complaining about water again. God goes to, uh, Moses goes to God. God says, okay, I want you to speak to the rock this time. And then water's going to come out. But he goes before the people, and what does he do? He says, you rebellious lot. And then he strikes the rock twice. Water came out, but God also told Moses, Moses, 
shouldn't have struck the rock. Why? Because you messed up the metaphor that I was trying to show the people. What metaphor is that? Well, we're told in God's word that Christ is the rock. And, it only, and Christ only needs to be struck once in order to provide living water. And Jesus came as the rock, and he was smote once upon the cross. And through that, what happens? Living water. Living water. But you had to hit it twice, mess up the whole metaphor, and guess what? Because of that, you don't get to go in the promised land. Too much is given, much is required. Much is required. And so they're going to be brought to this place uh, flowing with milk and honey. The word honey there is a, is a Hebrew word, devash, and it means honey or syrup. So this could be a honey made from bees or it could be a syrup or honey made from fruit. If you go to Israel with us, you'll get to experience probably for your first time date honey. Now, you can get date honey at, at, at lots of different places now. You can order on Amazon from Israel and stuff like that, and it's great. You know, it's the same stuff. But 20 years ago, before you had Amazon and all that kind of stuff, you'd taste the stuff and go, where can I get this? So you get all these jars of honey, and then you have to pray over to make sure it doesn't break, you know, in your bag on the way home, because then it no longer is a blessing. So, but... <laughs> This stuff is so good. I am telling you, those who've been to Israel, you know. You've tasted the date, honey. It's amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. I love it. If I lived there, I, w- I would be like this. I would just be having it every single day on every piece of toast, bread, pancakes, whatever it is, and, and just taking shots left and right. This stuff is so good. It's just, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so... It could be speaking of that, and, and it speaks of agriculture milk that you get from the goats and, and from uh, the, the cows and such, and then it also speaks of bees because they pollinate everything, but it's also speaking of the fruit that they can make into jams and jellies as well as uh, this syrup. So, and then there are six ethnic groups that are there inside the land of Canaan, small independent states. It's not an exhaustive list. But in most of the lists, when they give a summary of all these nations, it always ends with the land of the Jebusites. It seems to always be mentioned last, not in every single one, when it's talking about uh, the, the uh, topography of these nations. Uh, uh, once or twice it's mentioned second to last, but of the, all the rest of them, it's always mentioned last. And it almost seems to be that Israel itself didn't settle until David defeated the Jebusites in Jerusalem and then made that his capital. And it seemed from then on, that's when Israel started to become a nation with the different 12 tribes. So, verse 10, it says in in Hebrews, in Exodus 3, verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, Pharaoh here would be, Amenhotep II, this is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. We'll talk a little bit more about him as we continue on. Um, Up until this point, I'm pretty sure Moses, again, is very excited to hear all that the Lord is going to do. But now he is being told, I'm going to do this through you. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the first that Moses is hearing it, and he's a little reluctant. He's a little reluctant. God is going to Moses as his human instrument, as God does with us. There's a lot of things that God wants to do here in Castle Rock, but he wants to do it through us. 
He wants to do it through us, his human instruments. Verse 11, but Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Some of you are saying that. Who am I to invite someone to a sunrise service? Who am I to invite someone to church? Who am I to buy a shirt that says I love my church, and when someone says, what do you love about your church, you should have an answer. And if you don't, don't buy the shirt. (laughs) Don't buy the shirt. And so he's a little reluctant here, okay, because he knows he can't do it. He can't do it. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he, God, said, I will certainly be with you. Do do you need anything more than that? Certainly. The word certainly is Hebrew word key. It means because or surely. The words I will be is is actually one word in the Hebrew. It's it's hayah. means to be, become, come to pass. In other words, because of who God is, what has been spoken will come to pass. Certainly, surely, this will happen. Why? Because God is with you. And if you have God, you don't need any other. It's good enough. It should be good enough. And this shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Interesting thing about this sign. Usually a sign is given to show what God has said will come to pass. Usually the sign comes first. And then that gives you the confidence of knowing what he has said and the way that promise will come to pass. Here, it's different. It's an unusual sign. The sign is confirmed after Moses leads the people back out of Egypt. It is when Moses is back with the people of Israel worshiping, serving God on this mountain, that's where Moses is speaking here to God, that, that, um, that God is speaking to Moses here that that sign will be fulfilled. Moses is being called first to trust, obey God first in order to see this sign fulfilled. The sign mentioned here requires faithful obedience before it will become a reality. Yet, as we shall see, there will be many signs that go before this, but this is going to be the ultimate proof of Moses' divine calling that when he shows up there at the mountain where God is speaking to him now, which is also known as Mount Sinai, that it's at that point that's the ultimate proof that for one, God has been with him and that he has truly been called to what it is that he has been called to do. Because we're going to see people challenging Moses every step of the way until they get to the base of the mountain and even afterwards. But because God says it's going to happen, it is. And when Moses gets there, this, there, there's going to be a change with him at that point as well. And he will have even more faith and confidence in God. Understand that when God calls you out of something, he calls you to something. Okay? He calls you from to for. Okay? So he calls you out of the world, out of Egypt, out of the place of bondage, into serving and worshiping the living God. And when you do that, that is when your life has purpose and meaning. And if you don't, it does not. Because it's vanity. And you've hooked yourself up to something that will never satisfy and will not continue on once you die. 
This is why it's so important to get out of the world into the Lord and to be used by God in the way of worship and serving the holy God. And then this next verse in 14, or 13 and 14, and we have to wait till next time. (laughs) Let's pray.